Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week some news from Italy, from the United States, and a see you in hell that spans Germany, Italy, and Argentina. In Italy, we have some news that a neo-fascist organization, the Forza Nuova, um, my apologies to speakers of Italian, uh, I speak Spanish and Portuguese, so that's what you get. This fascist organization has been increasingly involved in anti-vaccination, anti-mask, and anti-health like passport protests in Italy. Uh, Italy is seeing a similar mobilization of this kind of thing uh, that we've seen in France and also in the United States, obviously. Uh, the interesting thing here, though, is that Forza Nova is a, is a transparently neo-fascist organization. Uh, they are a group of street thugs that are organizing within the anti-vax protest movement in Rome. And the other interesting wrench to throw in here is that uh, neo-fascism is just like illegal in Italy. It is not legal to be a fascist political party or political movement in Italy. Uh, the government is enabled to eliminate, like to dissolve such organizations. Uh, so over the last week, there has been actual violence on behalf of the Forza Nova uh, involved in these anti-vax protests um, and have resulted in a lot of arrests, including the arrest of their leader and also the uh, injury of like several dozen police officers uh, who were involved in these protests in Rome. The question is, is the Italian government going to dissolve this movement? And if so, uh, what will it do to their relationship to the burgeoning anti-vax movement uh, in Italy? And will this be a model that, you know, other countries also follow uh, when it comes to uh, the organizing of anti-vaccination and uh, like just anti-health law, health provision type protests? In the United States, there is a relationship uh, between, you know, what is the remains of the alt-right uh, and anti-vaccination movements, but it, but but it's not quite so concrete. Um, so this is an interesting thing to observe. Moving on to the United States, we have news from the Washington Post that Biden is uh, essentially going to release a bunch of documents from the Trump administration pertaining to the January 6th attempted coup. Uh, Biden has said that he doesn't believe that Donald Trump can uh, exert executive privilege, uh, which is uh, a sort of legal screen that allows presidents to do, you know, arguably illegal things or to um, just not release documents that would otherwise be made public um, because of how the executive functions. Uh, Biden's claim is that Trump can no longer uh, use executive privilege because he is no longer the president. And also because uh, executive privilege is a, is a uh, legal apparatus used to defend the national interest. And so Biden's claim is essentially that like, hey, defending or hiding your involvement in a coup is not in the national interest of the United States. We don't know what's in these documents yet, uh, but it could be quite a big deal. Uh, the fact that Trump wants them to stay hid hidden is really telling. Uh, but the thing is, he might also just be trying to draw this out uh, by trying to get these documents hidden or by trying to make the story not that Biden has released his documents, uh, but the fight between Trump and Biden about whether or not they should be released. Uh, when in reality, of course, the story should be whether these documents show that the president of the United States did indeed just like straight up attempt a coup in the country. And speaking of, 
stories and screens for the real story. Uh, we have another bit about January 6th. This story is from the New York Times, uh, but you can also find it reported elsewhere. Um, Bannon and some other uh, former Trump aides are going to refuse subpoenas issued about the coup. Uh, now, I talked about these subpoenas last week. Uh, what this means is that the uh, January 6th special commission in Congress, uh, which is run primarily by Democrats, but also uh, two Republicans, uh, including Liz Cheney, who is really on the outs with the party because of her participation in this panel. Uh, they've issued subpoenas to former Trump aides regarding their participation in or knowledge of the attempted coup. Uh, now, some of these aides are cooperating, but one in particular is not, and that is Steve Bannon, uh, arguably the most important uh, political force behind at least the beginnings of the Trump administration, uh, arguably the architect of Trump's victory uh, back in 2016, and also Trump's uh, biggest political advocate and um, like theorist organizer, um, the architect of the Trump administration at the very beginning of Trump's presidency. Now, Bannon's refusal of this subpoena means that the that Congress, that that this special committee of the House of Representatives could bring forth criminal charges against Steve Bannon for his refusal of the subpoena. That could be a really big deal, right? He could face criminal prosecution for this. Then again, criminal charges regarding the refusal of a subpoena is a real far cry away uh, from getting Stephen Bannon to testify or share information about what the commission actually wants to get information about, which is January 6th and the attempted coup. Uh, diff diffusing the story and derailing the commission in this way is potentially a very smart tactic uh, on the part of Trump and his allies uh, to try to draw this shit out, uh, not only to make people forget about the story or to make it just like seem like a really boring legalese John Grisham nonsense story instead of like a story about trying to see whether the president attempted to stage a coup. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that it, by derailing this and moving it into a, a legal battle that's sort of about like a meta question about like, you know, whether or not Bannon can be brought by a subpoena because he wasn't the chief of staff at the time of January 6th, whatever, you know, like it, it, it's boring enough, right? Uh, drawing this out could also mean that the uh, the legal proceedings could last up until 2022, when the midterm elections for the House of Representatives will be held. And if the Republicans, say, win those midterm elections, that could mean that they could dismantle the January 6th investigative committee before Bannon and the others could testify in this potentially damning way, like before they could just be like legally required to do so or face like extremely serious personal consequences. This kind of legal battle over the truth is really important. Um, if you look at the histories of countries that have experienced coups, um, like the one that the United States experienced earlier this year, um, this kind of truth-telling is vital, right? You need to know what happened. You need to know who knew what. You need to know who was giving the orders. But at the same time, we have to be really careful here. Uh, truth-telling of this nature isn't organizing, right? It, it, it's not going to dismantle the powers of the organizations, people, institutions, movements that led to us being in the situation where, you know, a, a failed president who had lost an election tried to stage a coup uh, to remain the president. 
so finding out this information, of course, isn't enough. Uh, getting Steve Bannon to testify in Congress, of course, isn't enough. Uh, organizing to prevent the right wing from gaining the power that it needs in order to attempt another coup or to just win an election and, you know, not need a coup um, is an entirely different question. It's also important to recognize that these legal questions about, like, who did what are distinct from the question of the legacy of the coup, how it's going to be remembered. Is the coup going to be remembered as, you know, an anti-democratic attempt by an elected president? Or is it going to be remembered as part of a partisan conflict between the Republicans and the Democrats, which is, you know, what this subpoena battle is really setting us up to remember it as, like, just as, like, one part of a long series of conflicts between the Trump administration and the Trumpified GOP and the Democrats, right? Now, we have to try to prevent that from being the dominant narrative in the United States, but focusing on these legal battles really really puts us in danger of uh, of focusing not on the important question, did the president attempt to stage a coup, uh, and instead put the story in the context of, you know, Donald Trump's battle against Hillary Clinton for the 2016 presidential election, uh, which is arguably part of a different story. Uh, the question about what the coup will be remembered as uh, is something that we're not going to know anytime soon. That's going to be decades from now. So uh, hopefully you're still paying attention by then. Finally, going to close this episode as I do almost every week's episode with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of right-wing figures in history. Today, we are talking about Eric Prebke, an SS officer, a member of the Gestapo, and an escapee to Argentina. Uh, Prebke was born in 1913 in what was then Prussia. Uh, he was a worker as a child. He had uh, a relatively difficult upbringing and joined the SS in 1936, which is relatively early uh, in the process of the Nazification of Germany. Uh, he was put in Rome uh, as the Nazi party and SS representative uh, to various legal entities in Rome, including uh, ostensibly the Holy See, that is the Vatican. Uh, he got this position because he spoke Italian. In Rome, during the war, and also before the war, uh, he led the SS's police division, the Gestapo. And in this office, he committed a major war crime, an atrocity uh, called the uh, Ardiatin Massacre in 1944. Uh, this massacre was a brutal retaliation for an Italian resistance bombing of an SS march. Uh, it, in response to the Italian resistance uh, attacking the SS in this way, um, the SS executed 335 prisoners that it was holding, uh, many of them communist members of this same resistance movement, uh, but also many of them just people that the SS had been holding for other reasons, uh, among those reasons being Jewish. Um, Prebke maintains that he did not participate in the Holocaust uh, in in such a way as to uh, transport Jewish people to prison camps or extermination camps, but he did imprison them in Rome uh, on the basis of their ethnicity and their religious practices. Uh, after the war, that is, after the fall of Italy, uh, Prebke was set to be tried for this and other war crimes, uh, but he escaped, uh, first to Tyrol, which is a region in northern Italy, and then finally to Argentina, where he lived publicly and fine 
for 50 years. Uh, that is from the 1940s all the way to 1994, when a reporter from the United States, who was there doing some investigative journalism, found him um, because of a locally printed book about Nazis who were living in the town he was in, which is uh, Bariloche. Uh, so in Bariloche, there were a number of Nazis, you know, supposedly former Nazis. Um, and Prepke was mentioned in this book as being one of the residents there. And it was known that Prepke was still under investigation, still wanted in Italy, Germany, and Israel for his participation in this massacre. Uh, there was a protracted legal battle uh, in which various Argentine courts argued about the nature of how he was going to be extradited, whether he was too old, blah, blah, blah. Finally, they agreed uh, to his extradition to Italy in 1996. Uh, on trial, Prepke took the standard I was just following orders defense uh, that most Nazis took and continue to take uh, for those few who are still alive to face uh, trial for their crimes. Uh, he was initially acquitted, uh, but then later convicted uh, to life imprisonment. Uh, by this point, he was in his 80s, uh, so that was uh, a very, very short sentence uh, relative to the one that he uh, arguably should have served uh, for his crimes, uh, not the least of which was simply his membership in the uh, SS. Prepke died this week in history in Rome uh, on the 11th of October 2013, but that's not where his right-wing story ends. He remained a political football. Where was he going to be buried? Uh, was he going to be able to have a funeral? Uh, the Catholic Church issued an extremely rare prohibition on holding any funeral of any kind for him uh, in Italy or Germany or Argentina. Argentina didn't want his body to be returned to the country, which was his final wish, to be buried next to his wife. Um, Germany didn't want him back. You know, his, his home village didn't want him back. Simultaneously, a right-wing Catholic splinter group called the Society of St. Pius X offered to give him a funeral, um, which the Catholic Church had refused. And so his funeral became the site of a neo-fascist brawl, uh, which was specifically the thing that the Italian government was trying to avoid. Uh, after this funeral, his body was buried secretly by the Italian police uh, so that his burial site could not become a pilgrimage location for neo-Nazis. So, Eric Prepke, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Leave a review on whatever it is your favorite uh, pod listener thing, whatever it is. And if you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. Also, you can get in touch with me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right, I'll talk to you next week.